we all are kind of hopeless romantics. The way people perceive technology, the way they extrapolate it, is usually very humanistic and almost romantic, even bohemian. We tend to take a technology and then deeply misunderstand it. Hello and welcome to Terrifying Robot Dog, episode 11 for Friday, June 19th, 2015. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about how technology is changing the way we interact with the world. This week, we talked to Scott Jensen from Google about why we need to drop our obsession with servant-style automation. Please stay tuned. Terrifying Robot Dog is next. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Could you tell the folks a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a UX designer. Uh, I started off at Apple and I've worked at various companies. Uh, I'm currently at Google and New York Strategy working on the Chrome team and working on next generation concepts for the web. So I know you recently wrote a post called Jeeves Must Die or Jeeves Must Go. I learned to avoid the must die in my posts. I got a lot of flack <laughs> for my mobile apps must die. So this was a little bit more modest and I called it Jeeves Must Go. Gotcha. Um, so maybe we could start there. We, the, the gist of the post, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the gist of the post is that maybe it's technologists, but certain people have this sort of Jetson's vision of what the smart home is going to look like, or like the, uh, the automated butler, Jeeves of the title, and, and that perhaps it's a red herring, or it's, it's either it's hopelessly naive, or it's, it's just making people... It's sort of giving smart homes a bad name before they even have a chance. Right, exactly. And I think that, in a sense, I think that people, we all are kind of hopeless romantics. And whether you go back in time to uh, Shakespeare, I'm sorry, not Shakespeare, I'm referring to uh, Harry Potter, or even Frankenstein, the way people perceive technology, the way they extrapolate it, is usually very humanistic and almost romantic, even bohemian. And we, I think we carry this through. Um, we tend to take a technology and then deeply misunderstand it. There's a, a classic movie from the 50s called Hands of a Stranger, where they, they, uh, a, a man gets a hands transplant. His hands are crushed and he gets a hands transplant. But the hands come from a murderer. So in the next few weeks, he starts killing people, but he can't control himself. And it's like that happens all the time when we have a new technology and we just assume it's either going to kill us or, heaven forbid, love us. <laughs> you know, and, and, and we tend to take these technologies and assume very humanistic things about it. Mm, that's interesting. Last week, we're, uh, I think it was last week, we were talking about, or no, it was a couple weeks ago, we were talking about robots and the difference between uh, robots and AI and how people tend to conflate them and say, you know, like AI is not necessarily a robot, when, but whenever anybody, you know, Elon Musk says, watch out for AI, it's because of robots. And th the thing that struck us um, was that people seem to insist on wanting to make robots sort of anthropomorphic. Oh, yeah. Which is super weird. Like, why I think, bother? I think it's just human nature, though. Well, but that's exactly my point, is mm -hmm. that... Um, I almost think there needs to be kind of a, a corollary to Clark's law. You know, any sufficiently advanced technology appears to be magic. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the corollary that's the more psychological one is any insufficient technology wants to be perceived as magic. <laughs> Inferiority <laughs> complex. Well, no, it's just like how many times have I bumped into people who are kind of <laughs> like, I can't wait till next year. I can print me an iPhone with 3D printers. <laughs> 
it's like you deeply misunderstand this technology. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's a, a new yeah. picture that came out about 3D printed clothes. And it's a cool technology. I don't want to, to diss it. I'm not sure if you guys – I don't have the link to it handy. But what yeah, I saw that. They're doing 3D spray form clothes. Now, it's cool. But it's 3D forms, and they're and it's aerosol. They're not. They've got zero control over what's going in. So, it's this idea that we tend to start by not understanding the technology, then our bohemian side kicks in, and then we just get all excitable about it. And that's where the Jeeve Post was trying to get to, which is to say we so desperately want a, a cheap servant mm-hmm. that any technology that comes along is trying to replace that kind of human desire to have a servant and i'm like we could do so much more creative things why are we so stuck on this servant thing you know what i think i, I think it has a lot to do with um, the fact that before the technology is realized you can't imagine the use cases that it's going to fulfill so it's really easy to imagine what a butler would do for you um it's but it would be really hard to program Right, because it's something something we know and we're familiar with. And the flip side of it is that there are probably a ton of things that you could do to smarten up your home or whatever that have nothing to do with a butler-type use case. Exactly, exactly. Well, and, and I told you before, Jonathan, when we were talking that at Frog Design we had this kind of running uh, – kind of mantra that we weren't in the design business. We were in the design therapy business. And the biggest issue we had was not coming up with new concepts. It was making sure that the owners of the company were receptive to new ideas because people tend to only kind of grab onto these old, tired cliches and they really only incrementally think into the future. And when you truly give them a creative idea, they're like, whoa, nobody will do that. That's too crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's just like, well, wait a second. What's the real problem here? And that's why, for example, in the Jeeve post, I talk about if you just think about what we can do with wireless control, the very concept of what a light is is going to change. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can take an existing lamp and turn it on or off is kind of missing the point. I'm going to be able to have – a hundred lights in my room that will ripple when I turn them on, and I could start to I can paint with light, and I can start doing things with light that I would never have done before. Now that's a little bit more grand thinking, I guess, but it's like let's really think outside the box and not say, "Hey, I'm going to flip that light switch." Yeah, you know, as as someone who who can't see unless I have good lighting, I would love it if my lights just kind of followed me around through the house. Yeah. I have an example of that that is not ex- not totally. Um, if you think of the uh, if you think of a Kindle and the, obviously the physical rep- representation of a book is everyone is familiar with, and then the Kindle came out and they they went Amazon took great pains great pains to extend the physical book metaphor in ways that were really really hard like page numbers for example. Yeah. Page numbers make mm-hmm. no sense in an ebook and actually it's a very hard problem to solve if you can resize the text. Does it still do page numbers or does it just show percentage now? It does still do page numbers. And uh, but you you can imagine why they did that. They felt like people were going, you know, there was going to be a tough adoption curve so they wanted everything to be as familiar as possible. So I feel like it when out of the gate they tried to ape the physical book as much as possible. But then over time, they started to add features that you could never have done in a physical book, which now have thoroughly put me off of physical books. Because there are things that I can do mm-hmm. with an like ebook, book yeah. like WhisperSync uh, to any device, like being able to switch over. You know, I could be reading, like literally reading a book text on the screen and then switch over to, oh, I have to get in the car and switch over to listening to it for a few minutes and then get, you know, when I get to where I'm going, I can go back to actually reading it. 
you, obviously you could never do that with a regular book. Um, things like highlighting and having all your highlights go to the cloud or see other people's popular highlights right inside of your book. I, I, when I read a physical book now, I miss a lot of that stuff. And so I feel like they've reinvented the notion of what a book is. And that's kind of what I feel like you're saying with the lights. Well, and I think also it's kind of a, yeah, you got to bring people along for the ride. So it wouldn't surprise me. This never happened for me. But when you were reading an ebook, if you happened at the physical book, that was the original whisper sync, right? You would be, you know, you'd want to say, oh, what page am I on? Oh, let me, let me go pick up the hard copy book, right? Now, I'm not quite sure that was actually that common because if you had the ebook, why would you do that? But over time, I'm, I'm with you. I'm totally on board with WhisperSync. I always get books and audio at the same time and page numbers are completely irrelevant. And so maybe over time, we'll just just move past that model. Hmm. I can see if I, the, the only example I've heard of that makes sense is if you're in a book club and everybody's trying to discuss pages of the book and some people have the physical book and some people don't. Um, ah, other, it's a timestamp for books. Right. It's a, yeah, it's a but still, once you, once you resize the text, once you resize the text, your page numbers are useless. I, it keeps them. It, it, it like, you know, the page numbers transcend the screen size. Yeah, you can be on oh, page three. You can be on page three for three clicks. Right. Oh, okay. I, I apparently have never paid attention to page numbers. I always just look at the percentage, which to me is a, a much more valuable metric. Right. But, but uh, to go back to to take your idea, I would claim to even more ludicrous extent when the iBook, uh, Apple's reader first came out as you flipped pages it curled the paper <laughs> as you flipped it over and i'm like okay really i mean th this is what you want to spend your cycle processing cycles on and and again my guess is it was more transitional um and uh, I, I frankly don't even use it anymore so i don't know if they've, they've continued it but that's that kind of original skeuomorphic kind of approach of let's just copy exactly the physical metaphor but at the same time, there's something really interesting about the kind of the physical characteristics of how you read. Have you guys ever tried those readers where they flash one word at a time on the screen? Yes. Yes. Okay, super fast, super uh, – you feel kind of like Superman for a second and then you're exhausted. You know, and, and I think there's something about the way the human eye works that actually means that reading on a line is something that is very calming and soothing and we can do that. So at some point, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm -hmm. right? So we still, frankly, are keeping some of that book metaphor by keeping lines. That's a good point. Uh, do you remember what that's called, Kelly? We did a show on it once. Oh, we, yeah, we did it. We did a niche show on it. We'll look at it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, we were reading like four or 600 words a minute, something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. But you do lose all of that sense of place, and it's almost like a, it's almost like a data dump into your brain. And although I don't find it too pleasing, it would make a lot of sense on a watch screen. Uh, it would, but it, it, again, for, as a designer, I always am kind of working with the 5% case, not the 95% case. So yes, 95% of the time you're pouring it into your brain. But when I'm reading a good book, I'm going to go, that was really cool. Let me reread that. Well, mm -hmm. that task is almost impossible with that kind of reader because right. by, by the time you stop it you're like 50 words past and then how do you scroll and so forth so if you want to encourage the kind of the delightful nuanced kind of bohemian qualities of reading you need to kind of preserve that five percent case where you want to go back and reread a sentence and i think that's the problem is it kind of takes the fun out of reading yeah you have, you have to keep it comfortable and fun one of my other design axioms is that programmers think mathematically and designers think statistically 
And the for select programmers will put every possible feature on the bar because you have to have all your features. Whereas a designer will say, what are the three things you're going to use most of the time? Let's design the hell out of those, make them really good. And all the other stuff, eh, that can be buried a little bit. And to me, it's that statistical thinking that really makes you come back to the humanness of the product. You know, And what is it about reading that's enjoyable? Well, it's not just efficiency and speed. And so an engineer would design the word at a time thing and say, hey, I fixed it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's that whole mathematical versus statistical thinking. And I think, unfortunately, it's a moving target too, right? Because what we think is fun and delightful now will likely change over time, like page numbers. So to say that there is permanence to this discussion, I think, is also probably not true. So let me, you just touched on something that was in the Jeeves uh, article, which uh, people can read after they hear this, but uh, if they haven't read it, I love the example, if you wouldn't mind sharing, of of why it's so easy or why it's so hard to, to create the Jeeves model in the house. And like the example of, of um, I think you, I think the percentage is like, if you get it wrong 10% of the time, you're... Oh, you're, yes. Well, I worked on the, uh, the original Newton project at Apple and, you know, with handwriting recognition. And what was the lesson that was seared into my soul there is that you can be right 90% of the time. But if you're wrong 10% of the time, people will hate you. <laughs> and so this is this statistical kind of argument, right? And so you can have a fairly automated routine and your lights can affect, you know, work most of the time. But you only have to be wrong a couple of times and it will get thrown out because you've now taken all the fun out of things. So the example I gave was light, turning on the light. You, you go into the bedroom and the lights go on. Great. Okay, you go into the room and your wife is sleeping. The lights go on. Thanks, honey. You know, um, so then you then they say, oh no problem, we'll have better sensors. We'll detect. It. So you, you go in, and the dog is sleeping on the bed. So the lights don't go on. You trip and fall. Thank you. You know, <laughs> it's like or the, the the more subtle one that you'll never solve is my wife is watching TV in a darkened room. I walk in, the lights don't go on, but she's like, you know what? Turn on the lights. I can't find the remote. <laughs> well, like, what are you going to do? Read my mind? <laughs> you know. And so for us to kind of think that we are, I mean, to, to it's actually very arrogant to think that we can create an automated house that's based on the equivalent of, of male filtering rules. Totally. You know, it's just like, no, and again, it'll work most of the time. But if it fails a couple of times, it's going to be. So that's why I think you guys have touched on those, on those previous posts, that you, you, it should be an augmentation. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be an automation. It should be an augmentation. And I believe uh, what was really fun is after I published the Jeeves post, someone pointed me to the uh, Douglas Engelbart. And how he actually was the first person to talk about this and how effectively you want an intelligence system to set things up for you. So you just basically knock over the domino, but right. you're, st- you're still in control. And that strikes yeah. me as a much more robust and uh, useful model. I, it strikes me often when I am talking to colleagues or seeing new technologies coming out of Silicon Valley that it is um, a lot of times stuff built for and by single guys. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> the logic yeah. of a single guy's life is way easier to predict than, you know, like, I mean, as soon as you throw a, a significant other or yeah. pets or kids, forget it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I tried this once. I had um, my, my daughter gets up at a specific time every morning to go to school. And I, I had my, my Hue Lights program to come on at that time every morning. So I so they were on when I got up and which was all fine and good until the first day she went to bed the night before it was sick. And I knew she wasn't going to go to school and I forgot about the lights coming on. Exactly. And I got woke up at six 30 in the morning when I really did not need to be. (laughs) 
it is so bad when it's wrong. Yeah, right. that is that that is one of the the school robocalls is one of the reason I reasons I no longer have a landline phone. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was that in, bad. Addition, <laughs> in addition to the idea that even if you have these digital rules and and we're messy humans that like to have occasional sleep in days and so forth, there's also uh, the other aspect of it, which was to say that we get so enamored with digital rules, we apply them to analog tasks. And so my favorite example there is the coffee machine, which is to say turning the power onto a coffee machine is fairly trivial, but the vast majority of the coffee comes from the fact that you have this analog task, which is pour in the water, put in the coffee grounds, put the coffee pot underneath the thing, and if you don't do that, your machine will happily turn on and put coffee all over your floor in the morning. <laughs> yes. You know, and so it's like, wait a second, you're at, you're only automating the the ten percent that's the easiest to do. Now, if you were to build a coffee machine with five gallons of water and coffee, you know, it was all set to go, then that's one thing, and maybe we'll, we'll get that, you know. But it's like we shouldn't get carried away with crossing that boundary, and again, or, or at least discussing where that boundary is. And so that's why, for example, I'd like very much to break up what a light is and have floor lighting separate from ceiling lighting. Because you can automate floor lighting. That no one's going to wake up too much if that happens. You know, whereas this, it's the ceiling light that's the dangerous one. And by breaking that up, we can have a more nuanced conversation about automation. Mm. Yeah, the, the thing that I would like to see people breaking up is the the sensor platform from the actuator platform. Oh, right. And mm-hmm. it's like, I want all the sensors everywhere. Uh, and, but I, I don't know, I, I don't, you know, I always say that the, the smart home has to, we have to learn before we can have the smart home. So first you put the sensor platform down and you actually get the, the physical analytics of what's going on in your house and you get reports on them and you can review them or, or whatever, or you get notifications about it even, but it doesn't do anything automatically other than perhaps notify you. And then maybe you do have some kind of actuator platform where you can open the the garage door or you can open the back door, unlock the back door or whatever. But you still put those, the smarts are still in the homeowner. Yeah. But you're, you're, but you're giving them superpowers because they, now they, they can sense their entire environment, whether they're there or not, and they can control their entire environment, whether they're there or not. Uh, But it's, it's like, how long, I mean, predictions are hard, especially about the future, but (laughs) I mean, how far away is this? How far away is, is the internet of things? And like, where is it coming? F- where do you think it'll come first? I can't imagine it'll be homes. I always think it's, it's going to be restaurants or uh, industry, that kind of thing. But well, that's, it's, that's the whole point is that usually this stuff is already happening, right? So GE has been doing internet of big things for a very long time because they've got their own ecosystem and they've got the money and they can. So what, what I've heard stories about the way they're automated, they're, uh, instrumenting jet engines, for example, or stuff like that. So the, I think industry is going to be all over this. It's going to be hard to come in the home because it's going to be so heterogeneous, right? So you're going to have all, like, you want thousands of your companies to all play nice together in the home. That's a much, much harder problem. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, I actually wrote a previous post called The Internet of Things Needs a Few Smacks. <laughs> and, um, and because it's like everyone keeps saying, oh, all we need is a common protocol. You know, all, if all we have is, if we just can agree on Bluetooth versus Zigbee, we're done. <laughs> And, and I'm like, really? Honestly? And so I actually took more of a UX slant at it to say, what are the things that I would like to see to like really make the home work? And so I, the reason why I did Smacks was I wanted a semantic map, 
so that if your home had came with a map and it was just built into the concept of what your home was, it would allow you to write really clever apps on top of that. So that you could, you knew where you were, and you could see, like for example, if you had your location, it could say, "Oh, you're in a, you're in a hallway, and you're moving towards the kitchen." So I'll turn the kitchen lights on before you get there, that kind of thing. And it's a, a raw data structure, and then automatic configuration, which is we've all tried to configure an IoT device. It's hideous. It's hideous. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, and so, how do? And so, there's a whole discussion about what that means. And then the other thing I was talking about was statistical control, which is now, Jonathan, once you have your sensors. I don't want one sensor turning on my light switch. I want six. Mm-hmm. I want them to, to vote. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, and I want to say, oh, look, it, there's actually a couple people in the room. Or the motion sensor isn't detecting anything, but my heat sensor is. There probably is somebody still here. He's just reading in a chair and not moving. You know, so to me, I think that we have a much more complicated problem. And we're not – now, what I'm asking for is possibly naive because it's very complicated. But it seems to me like we have to talk about what we really want and then figure out where we're going to get there. You well, know. isn't that the problem is that it seems like every time I talk to somebody about this, they either want the Jeeves model or they can't imagine the use case and they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. So it feels like it's a bunch of, you know, young single people solving a problem that only they have, or, which is really not even that much of a problem. The flip side of that, I suppose, is that once a, a technology is uh, has reached a tipping point, let's say, that's when you start to realize what you can do with it. I, it's almost impossible. I feel like, well, you're you're a design guy. Is it even possible to know the use case before the all of the tech is deployed? No, exactly. I mean, one of the one a slide I always use in my talks is to say that people forget that the delta between Mosaic and Gmail it was ten years. Mm-hmm. It took a long time before we got really. Ajaxy interactive web page. Now, that's not to say the web wasn't valuable when it first came out, but the web really took off, you know, with with Ajax type things. And um, it takes a while for a platform to develop. Yeah, it's like that hype cycle, and then you go into the trough of disillusionment, and then you, ten yeah. years later, you start to go, "Whoa, this is awesome." Well, yeah, and there was a really great uh, blog post by VC about a couple of years ago. I forget who did it, but talked about the fact that we've basically milked the internet for all it's worth. It's time for a new paradigm, and we're not going to get it by incremental VC funding. And that this gets now to my more kind of communist leanings. Uh, I have another blog post called Design Communism, where I feel like if we're not careful, the internet will just be a happy accident. And we're not really going to get this. So that's why I wrote things like uh, this automatic configuration and and a semantic map. Because I actually think for this stuff to take off, we need a new internet-level raise of the ocean. We need a, All the boats need to get floated by a whole new set of features that we can then build on top of. And we're so excited by creating another app store to lock people into our platform mm. uh, that I actually think that the business model right now is actually actively fighting, shall we say, the new internet level standardization that we need for some of these things. When you're saying internet, do you mean web or do you really mean internet? Uh, that's a good point. I think that I, I really probably mean internet mm-hmm. uh, because it was a base technology and then the web was an example and based on top of that. But then, of course, the web followed the same pattern, which it itself had its own set of technologies. Um, but in general, what I'm referring to is an open set of capabilities that is free for everyone to use, which allows everyone to then make even more money. So I'm not really a communist, but I do think that infrastructure-based thinking is a very powerful thing. And if we can get past that, um, it's going to really enable the kinds of things that we're talking about right now. 
So Kelly, what was that link you shared the other day? I think it was pronounced ether. Uh, yeah. Was that a? It was like a peer-to-peer version of Slack or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was the the peer-to-peer um discussion platform. Yeah, it was sort of like peer-to-peer peer-to-peer IRC or something like that. Yeah, it was like ether. Get ether.net. Yes. It was like. It was like BitTorrent and Slack had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it, I mean, I, I can't say I uh, my head is all the way wrapped around what you said about that. Because, the I mean, the, the you can't take the connectivity away. Connectivity is um, core to, every, like, every revolutionary thing that's happening across all these things, whether you're a, an app store fan or a web fan, like without, if the connectivity goes away, um, there's nothing like we're back to basically the stone age of the 1980s. Agreed. So like, so what do you mean by in infrastructure plays like some new kind of, I don't know what, like, like real time peer to peer sensor platform. That's like, or, or maybe something that's, uh, that's a drop in to your home and it creates its own, uh, like network that is not actually connected to the internet? Well, I mean, let's just say, for example, that we had a standard uh, way of mapping and annotating your house. So you had a semantically rich annotation of your house, and, and it was a digital format that we could all agree on. And then every house just came with that. That would allow, effectively, Nest and so forth to say, oh, where'd you place this thing? And, 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 and if, for example, all you need is very trivial location-based triangulation, and Bluetooth Low Energy does this fairly easily, you can do things like, oh, I'm turning on my new Nest Protect or I'm turning on my new alarm clock, or I'm turning on my new lamp. And the system kind of goes, you're turning on a lamp in the bedroom. I'm going to attach you to the bedroom light switch by default. Do you want to change that? So you can now start to create all sorts of things based on the fact that you have these abilities, these things. So in a sense, much like I can assume everything has an IP address, and I can open up a WebSocket connection and push it data, now I can assume that everything has a location, and I can reason about it, and I can then make decisions on it. So it's just about what is the next API that we can count on having around. Right, I see what you mean. So, And then we would finally be able to Google our house for stuff that we can't find, which I would love. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but part of it, of course, is the fact that, you know... Um, I often refer to this as the, as the SMS problem, right? And nobody has really figured out how SMS ever really worked in or, or came into being. It was like this really happy accident, right? And it was originally kind of this thing hidden in phones. Teens discovered it. It actually only worked within your own network, so you couldn't send it across network. And so you could, and then it slowly grew into this monster of the 90s. And uh, in many ways, the internet was the same thing. It was good enough. In fact, it was better than it needed to be, and it created something almost accidental. Um, and yet today, we're also forward-thinking. This is the project I want to build. It will let us do this. That we are, like you said, burdened with fully thinking it through before we implement it. And so, to a certain extent, I think we are kind of wringing our hands and looking for the next great, you know, IPO versus saying what's going to happen. And I, I actually am almost embracing kind of the chaos that's coming out of open source and Kickstarter. I mean, it's you know what? Maybe we're going to have the equivalent of Linux for a while on, on home automation, and it's going to suck. <laughs> and it, and it's just going to suck for an awful long time. But eventually, we're going to figure this out, and we're going to get a bunch of little mammals that are going to do an end run around the dinosaurs. Because, frankly, once you get something that's good enough and it's open, I think an awful lot of people are going to flock to that. 
Well, we've been talking for a while. That's probably a great place to leave it. So I will thank you very much, Scott. Thanks for coming on. Great speaking with you. Oh, sure. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you very much. All right. Well, that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for Terrifying Robot Dog. Bye. Bye. Would you like to support Terrifying Robot Dog? Just think of two friends who would dig the show and send them to terrifyingrobotdog.com for links to iTunes, Facebook, and RSS feeds. If you want to be awesome like Gradient Man, you can help us out by leaving a nice review in iTunes. Thanks. Thanks.